Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to talk to everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Today, I'm joined by guest Tim Lockie. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really, it's, uh, really fun to be here. So, Tim, you have a wide range of knowledge and experience being an entrepreneur for more than 20 years. Maybe for those who don't know you so well, though, you could just introduce yourself high level, you know, what, you, what you've been doing the last few years and, and what you've accomplished. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of ground to cover. And uh, it is fun to think, uh, think about. So I got my start uh, as a do-gooder back when I was in high school. Uh, and really seeing the world be a better place has always been a passion of mine. I would say that that took on very strong evangelical uh, conservative tones when I was younger that uh, I think that I look back on with a lot of um, regret and empathy for myself. But what that did do is steer me towards a world where I asked a lot of questions around, hey, how do we make the world better? And those questions have served me really well uh, my whole career. And instead of being a writer and thinker and influencer like I expected to be or wanted to be, I found myself constantly in the back of, you know, in the back room, helping on data, helping on technology. And, um, you know, I finally, I, I finally realized like, that's what I do really well. And I should just lean into that. So I started Now It Matters uh, in 2010. And just as a way to help nonprofits use Salesforce and really not much more of a plan than that. It was bootstrapped and, you know, just kind of just kind of made it work. And uh, and I learned so much in the process about Salesforce, about nonprofits, um, about fundraising programs um, and a lot about learning to run companies and a lot about, honestly, uh, equity and inclusion and diversity in the space. And. I became a Salesforce MVP. I've traveled the world talking about Salesforce. And then in 2019, I was at a conference and I saw a slide that a friend of mine put up that said 90% of organizations collect data, but less than 40% use that data to make decisions. And it really just brainwormed in and made me really think, how, why is there so much failure in our work together? And uh, so for the last three years, I've been rethinking the models of how we implement technology. And it's led to, uh, you know, uh, the launch of a new brand that is just coming out and uh, just helping me reframe the issues that nonprofits have with technology in uh, new and interesting ways. So that's a long explanation, but uh, I think that that catches us up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a rich tapestry. I think there's, I heard at least two organizations, a podcast, there's a passion project. So there's a lot of ground to cover uh, we'll see how far we can get uh, in this one episode. But I'm curious to know before we get there, just a, the starting point. So uh, you said you were always attracted to being, to how to improve society. How did you come to actually decide to start Now It Matters, which is focused on nonprofits? I think, um, so I studied economics and that um, that doesn't lend itself always to being a good entrepreneur, honestly. But in my case, what it did is it it allowed me to start thinking about the questions of options and alternatives. And as I looked at options that nonprofits had in technology choices, especially in the late aughts, there were, there were not a lot of cloud solutions uh, available. Um, there were a lot of on-prem, this is before you know, cloud services had taken off. There's a lot of suspicion around putting information on the cloud. 
And so I just saw an opportunity to serve uh, clients that I understood. So I didn't know what it was like to work in for-profit uh, industry, but I knew a lot about decision making in the nonprofit space. And I knew, you know, some things about nonprofits that other business consultants that were doing some of this work at the time just didn't understand. So things like money follows vision in nonprofits. So if you ask what is the budget, they'll tell you what they earmarked. But if you change the vision, you'll increase budgets in a way that you can do in the nonprofit world that really doesn't flow the same way in the for-profit world. Uh, so I just, I knew things like that. And that led me to believe, hey, I think that I can make a difference in a better way and have a competitive advantage in the nonprofit space in a way that uh, other business consulting firms that were doing some of this nonprofit work just were getting stymied all, all you know, frequently with. It's not the first time I've heard where people have a, a wide range of experience outside of the nonprofit space and then decide to apply it to the nonprofit space. And I think that's a, there's a lot to be learned along the way, but um, I think it's important to know that there's not, they're not siloed, right? There, there are so many lessons you can learn from the for-profit space that can be applied and sometimes even better. And sometimes to your point, there are, there are elements within the nonprofit space that are specific to that. Like I've never heard about that cause follows vision. That's a actually, and you said it, and it was like a light bulb moment for me, actually. So I'm really happy to hear that. Um, I'm curious to know about the, the name. Now it matters because the it is capitalized, so it could be pronounced as now it matters. Was there obviously a a reason for that? What's the right word? Cleverness. <laughs> yeah, I mean the easiest explanation is that. I'm a dad and I like dad jokes. And so um, when I thought about uh, naming the company, I, I was like, you know what? I like It Matters. And I like that it can be, it is uh, both the describer and it's also information technology. And so I like that, but the domain was already taken. And so I was just looking for a domain that was open. And what I realized uh, is in the past, uh, you know, and this was again in 2009, 2010. In the past, a lot of nonprofit IT had been done by somebody's nephews, cousins, volunteer, friend, whatever. And it was a lot of times just like, can you make a website? Can you set up an email server for us? And uh, increasingly, what I noticed is that where it had been for a long time that the CIO, uh, or sorry, the CFO had a lot of the executionary power, just a budget. Uh, in in nonprofit spaces, what was go what was happening frequently is that a board would decide on an initiative, and then um, that initiative would check in with CFO to make sure that there was funding for it, and then get stalled out because there weren't enough. There wasn't an IT execution team that could make that happen, and so decisions would get made and then not executed for long amounts of time. And the board was really confused by this. And so I just realized it didn't used to matter. IT didn't matter in the past, the way that it's going to matter in the future. And so I picked now it matters as a way to indicate, look, it wasn't, it wasn't a big deal, but now it is. And it's time to get on board and start to really think about technology for your nonprofit and uh, understand that as a force multiplier for for the um, mission that you want to accomplish. That's an awesome name. Very clever. So thank you. <laughs> so what kind of services does Now It Matters offer? 
Well, and I'll also say I did consider calling it now it happens for a while. And then I was like, uh, I don't I don't think that I want to <laughs> do all the explanations around that. But um, yeah. So, you know, again, until 2019, what we focused on was delivery of uh, Salesforce predominantly for nonprofits and then the training and mindset that would need to be, that would also accompany that. And so uh, we implemented Salesforce, almost entirely Salesforce, you know, for organizations that were really small, less than, you know, less than a half a million in budget, all the way up to organizations that are, you know, were top 10 largest nonprofits in the world, delivering billions of dollars of foreign aid. And we covered a lot in, in between national organizations, state agencies, and, and really focused on, uh, on finding clients that had the vision to really see a project through. And so we spent more time identifying, like, where is a client at and how do we identify, you know, a really solid client and even developed a, a $900 project product that was a flight plan that essentially just said, what, you know, what is it that needs to happen and how do we help you discover that and, you know, do a, uh, an assessment for an, an organization. We would usually lose money on that, but it allowed us to identify who a client was, really examine the politics inside the organization, see if we felt like this, you know, client could succeed or not. And, you know, about 25% of the time, we would just say, like, there's a project here, but we don't feel like you're ready for it. Or we're not the right pro partner for it. And we would sometimes just refer them to another partner. And I've always been committed to what is in a client's best interest, even if that was not working with us. And so we developed a really good reputation and a very solid um, way of relating to our competitors um, who I'm friends with and I, and I know and knew well uh, and, and really developed a way of handing off clients to partners that would serve uh, clients best. Uh, and a lot of times we did think it was us. And so we would take that project and, and we would typically work with clients for uh, a number of years. Later, after 2019, a lot of our services changed to something that we call guidance. And I've, we, we delivered that in a different way, started to explore what that looks like. And, and then I started doing a lot more advising in the ecosystem, also uh, consulting and advising for either startup companies or for-profit companies sometimes, um, and then some executive advising for senior leaders in, in both nonprofits and in professional service agencies um, that, that were interested in either growing or understanding the industry better. Um, and so I've, I've done a lot of that kind of work. I really like the fact that you qualify clients because I think this is one element as a consultant, at least, that instead of just saying yes to everything, to every project, every client, you actually go through this qualification process to make sure that you are a right fit in both directions, to make sure that you can help them and then they're ready for help. And I think that's a, an important entry point before you start actually working on the project to do that qualification process, that discovery or that uh, flight plan, I think you called it. And I wish more organizations, more you know, nonprofit consultants did that to be able to make sure it's a good fit and if not to redirect and I think there's nothing wrong with you know being redirected to another uh, agency or to someone you th might think is a better fit and I actually when I it happens to me for example when I go to a, for a service and they say listen you're not right the person but you know check out this person I actually appreciate that first person I, I acknowledge the fact that I respect them that they're not the right fit for what I'm looking for 
And I speak highly of that first person. So there's nothing to be ashamed about in the process either. Yeah, that is exactly what we found. I would say that the payroll pressure started to put a lot of a lot of pressure on that kind of a move um, for us. And, and it made me start to think about the role of employees. So at times now it matters had as many as 20 staff. As I've, you know, as I've alluded to the pivot that I'm making now, I'm, you know, relatively few staff and a couple of, of contractors because we've we've rethought the model so much on what we do. But I will say that that um, one of the important questions that executives in nonprofits can, you know, should ask is why, why are you the right partner? And is there, uh, is there somebody in this industry that you feel like would be better to work with us? And I think that that's a, it's okay to ask that kind of a question directly. And, um, and I think that you'll start to, uh, I think um, nonprofits can really start to do more to become informed consumers of the kind of services that they're that they are buying. I would say I'd love to answer that question more fully. And the best way to do that would be talk about really what uh, happened as I started to find, uh, as I started to answer the question of why is there so much failure of nonprofits to use technology? You know, places where, and I'm sure you've run into this, Alex, where you've done a project and it technically meets all of the requirements and everything that that organization was asking for and yet they're still in spreadsheets and not using the system as it was intended and and I think that there um there's a lot of uh, there was a lot that I ended up feeling like we need to uncover in the industry around why is there that level of failure here in a way that's really different than the for-profit space uh, so I'm curious Alex if that is I mean, you know, if that's common to your experience as well, or if that's something that uh, I ran into more than you have. Well, the focus of the podcast uh, is about technology, but that's only one side of the coin or one part of the equation. The other part is the human element. And change management is a big part of that and making sure the client is ready for what you're going to achieve. Because you can, like you said, build the most amazing platform, the most amazing app, and have the most amazing technology. But if they're not ready for it in some capacity, then it's going to be a failure. So I'm yes, I have the same experience. I, I think I have the feeling at least you have spent more thoughts about it. So I'm really curious to pick your brain about it. Uh, and I think you even came up with a name called the Human Stack, for which you even created a, a service mark for. So I'm curious to know a bit about the the brainchild of what is the Human Stack to you? What does it represent? Um, let's start there actually, and then we'll, we'll jump into the questions as they come. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the one of the this has been a real source of discovery for me and it's allowed me it's allowed me to just kind of go back to basic assumptions and ask is that assumption true or not uh in some really non-threatening ways and and so one of one of the most fundamental assumptions that i ended up questioning was what is the technology in terms of it and one of the things i mean by that is that as I started to think about the theory of change, you know, since we work with nonprofits, then I was like, okay, how do you take an organization from where they are today, not using technology effectively, to where they would be using it effectively? What does that, what does the destination look like on that? And then what is the path that that goes on? And then how do I explain that in a way that my mom would understand? And so um, really, I boiled down to a very simple model of talking about 
in technology, what we are doing is starting with data, which is what you give a system. And then information is what a system gives back to you. And then insight is what you do with that information. And then story is how you communicate that information or that insight to other humans. Um, and as I started to dig into that, what I realized is humans are processors, right? Like our brains process information like computers do, but the parts of that, that theory of change that humans do best are the information are the insight and the storytelling. And the parts that the computers do best, those the computer processor is data storage and uh and and data manipulation into information right and so part of part of the assumption i want to question is really is there a, a distinction on that and what if the world looked like humans are part of the information chain and but i don't mean by that uh just to be really clear is i don't view humans as just components of a larger system or cogs in a wheel what i'm actually saying is the emotional instinct that humans br bring because our processors live behind this firewall of emotions, which is really different than, you know, uh, computer technology. So what, what does it look like to configure humans and to evolve not just the tech stack, but what if there was another stack called the human stack and we have to configure and implement humans around technology the way that you have to implement technology around humans? And that that kind of thought experimentation really allowed me to start thinking differently about what we were doing and categorizing failure in less of a customer experience language in more of, hey, the, there's a core fundamental issue here that technology just can't get at. And we have to actually rethink the model all the way from the bottom. Does that does that make sense or am I just like talking crazy over here? No, I love it. Data, information, insight, story. That's a that's a beautiful path. When I hear it, it actually lends it. It reminds me of. Um, so I also have a background in user experience, and part of the theory of it, or part of the practice of it, I should say, is making sure that you understand that we are built as humans in a certain way. And like you said, we're built kind of like a computer. Input goes in, we do a processing, and output comes out. And we are built to recognize certain patterns, certain behaviors for certain actions. And when you, in, in the realm of user experience, you have to know this fundamental psychology in order to be able to build better systems. There's a reason why certain uh, systems work better than others because of the human element, because it's, it's built for humans. It's not the other way around. You shouldn't have to build a system and teach a human how to use it. You sh the system should be built in the way that humans will absorb it um, natively or, or intuitively. So there's a lot of um, overlap I see in it, but I think you've taken it a bit further in in building this little construct of called the human stack. So I, I love it. Yeah, and again, back to everything, like until my mom understands it, I've got more work to do. Um, and my mom's a very bright person. So I do, I, you know, that please don't hear that as an insult um, to my mom in any way but technology is not her world. So she becomes a very helpful benchmark. But one of the, one of the ways that I had to start thinking about this was beyond just construction and architecture of it was what are the market conditions that, that affect this? And one of my large 
discoveries is how important not experiences, but expectations are. And there's, um, there's a lot there. And I feel like I'm still unwrapping that. But what has been helpful in that analysis is to think of it as th thinking of technology as car manufacturing. So think of it this way that there's like Microsoft, Salesforce, Blackbaud. These are three large uh, CRM slash car manufacturers. And then there are partners like Now It Matters and others that become functionally dealerships of those, of those cars. And what happens is customers come, we take their order, we figure it out, and we deliver the car to them. And what I found was a world in which there are not drive, like nonprofits don't know how to drive. And so no matter how good the car is, until we create driving schools and services that create driving schools, there is no amount of better car that will handle that. And so that really shifted my view of what we, what are we trying to do here? And are dealerships the best version of handing that out? And why are, why are nonprofits coming to a dealership if they don't know how to drive? And do they know that they don't know how to drive? And then the big one was, this is more like learning to drive a ladder truck, which is those big fire engine things that have a steering wheel on both the back and the front, because the real issue around driving technology is not does somebody in the organization know it well, but how do you move the whole organization, the humans in it from a position of resistance to technology to resilience in technology? And so it doesn't matter if there's just one like MVP on the team. What we are, what we need is a high amount of collaborative energy from everybody on the team and while there is fear and negative emotions related to technology, you're going to find it really, really difficult to implement anything, no matter how good the technology is. And so really the idea of how do we teach people how to drive um, became kind of center focus for me. And I think the answer there was same answer that came out in the 80s relative to implementing technology, which is it needs a, a methodology. Does that make sense? It does, and I'm so I'm, I was actually leading up to my next point was so when there's a problem, you have to address it. I understand from a technology perspective, but also a human perspective. And maybe a better way to say this is: is this still a conceptual concept, or is it something that now that you understand the theory behind it, here's how we apply it in practice? I guess that's what I'm. I want to know the how you take what you've just said and now say, okay, here's a live scenario with a new nonprofit. They're having some issues. And how do we handle those issues, whether it's through a technology solution or through a human solution? Love it. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for grounding that. And okay, like, but what do you actually do? That is that is perfect. So um, yes, um, just like just like you and I would be really suspicious of any uh, any implementation where the implementer was not either functioning in either agile or waterfall. Um, there, there is. Um, I created a methodology uh, for digital maturity is probably the easiest way to say it. So, you know, in a methodology, what you have, and I called it digital guidance. So digital guidance is the methodology that I created to help deliver digital maturity at scale and repetition um, for each new client that is not dependent on that client. And so a lot of this gets at the idea of digital transformation which feels a lot like the emperor's new clothes of the professional services world to me, where, you know, there's so much guesswork 
And there's so much mystery around this idea of change management and strategy and governance and adoption. All of those things feel like outcomes to me. So, um, so the answer, I think, is actually to create a methodology for that. That is job descriptions and roles and professional services that are delivering that. Um, and so uh, to, that, to that end, what I would do with a new organization is I would put them through a diagnostic that I created. And that diagnostic looks at three human stack uh, vitals and three tech stack vitals. And, um, and I can just run that in, you know, I can have a team uh, put all of that information in on surveys and I can just read the survey results out and some of the comments and turn around and tell an organization, here's where I think you're at. That used to take me 25 to 100 hours. Now I can do it in an hour. Um, and so I think that that's really important is to know so clearly, here are the six things that lead to that. Um, and so those six things, just really quickly on the tech stack, the vitals are solution fit, data quality, and utilization. And on the human stack, the three vitals are uh, solution, um, sorry, system sustainability, digital strategy, and accountability. Um, and depending on where organizations are and how spread out they are on those um, by team, I can really do a lot to say, okay, this is what this looks like for this organization. So the first thing is understanding well enough to be able to measure the gap on where they're at. And there are some organizations where we could just say like, your, your sense of digital maturity is so high that all you really all you need is a new CRM or an improved CRM or improved tech stack system. A lot of times what I find is that organizations are not prepared yet to really do better than you know, the car that they're already in. And so in that case, we start working with them and the framework really focuses around four ideas that we, that we work on immediately. And that's to establish teams and roles and, and a cadence and to create that, uh, a weekly tactical rhythm and a monthly strategic rhythm so that people understand that, there's, that there are weekly actions taken and, and then monthly accountability against those actions. And then we focus uh, an internal team on, um, on doing two things every, every week and every month for the rest of the life of that organization. Because this is really a, an ongoing organizational need to just manage their system well. And those two things are data hygiene. So uh, that looks at creating the reports and goals around improving three, three data quality uh, KPIs per month. And then it looks at complaints that are coming from staff. And so the idea there is if you can get an organization to stop whining about what they don't like and start complaining um, specifically, then you can do a lot to help that organization by listening to those issues and starting to correct those uh, on a time frame. And if you do that month over month, what you do is you start to shift the organization's ability to understand where it could go together. And then, uh, and then you just focus that on one team at a time. The, the way that I've done that for most organizations has been to start with the team that is learning this process and then focus on the development team next and then the marketing team, and then the program team, and then the finance team. And just feels like that, that kind of lends itself towards 
um, you know, a one team at a time approach. And, and that is something that I discovered is that each team has to do their own digital transformation. So a lot of teams are using their own tools or using the same CRM or same platform system, but using it differently. And so it, it you know, people just need time for that. And right now, yeah, what, what happens right now is that you do, you know, a thousand hours on a project and then you try and squeeze in one or two days of end user training instead. And that, that just doesn't stick. Humans really need more exposure and more time and a way to practice that. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's what the framework looks like. It's called digital guidance. Um, and there are professional service roles on the consulting side that you establish to help create that, uh, that kind of flow inside of an organization. A lot to unpack there. So uh, just to take a step back and just to make sure I restructure it in my own words, it sounds like this diagnostic of this, this survey that you ask is probably one of the first, maybe initial steps you take even before you start deciding to engage with a client. So it's part of your qualification process. Is that true? Correct. Yep. And then from there, based on the results, you decide, okay, it's look, you guys are mature enough. Um, the organization, I should say, is mature enough. Uh, all you need is a proper uh, CRM or other related technologies versus oh, you guys are really need a lot more um I don't know the right word for this. I'm going to have to make something up. But there's much more process and human element that needs to be adjusted first before we even talk about technology. Would that be a correct summary? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think a, a, a simple way to say it is your car is fine uh, for what you need it for right now. What you need to do is learn to drive it. Um, mm. and, and so that would be a, a way to talk about it. Like, what is the need here? Is it to learn how to drive or is it a better car or is or it both? both? Right. Yeah. Or neither. In some cases like, Hey, you know, like you're actually doing really well. Uh, keep leaning into what you're doing and um, maybe uh, focus on uh, fundraising strategists, uh, marketing strategists, uh, et cetera. So. Mm -hmm. And then from there you have this, it sounds like a very well-structured methodology to say, okay, here's how we get now from where you are today to where you want to be, whether it's any one of those three uh, paths? Yeah, well, um, I would say it's actually just the driving path. So uh, there are two methodologies that help make a better car, so to speak. And so what, what, what was missing in the market is how do you develop the drivers themselves in a methodology if you're not changing the cars? And, the, and I don't know if you've observed this, but my observation has just been that organizations don't know how to ask to become better drivers. And so they assume that the car is the problem. But if they had the option of saying like, hey, like the car's okay for now, you know, but let's just learn to drive it. I think more organizations would be appreciative of that approach. So uh, the methodology really is focused on how do you drive um, less than how do you have a better car? Does that make sense? Totally. And that also would imply, of course, that you have to be very delicate with, with the, the driving aspect because you're dealing with ego, you're dealing with a whole bunch of human factors, which are now it's much more psychological versus uh, more you know, tech. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, um, I, that's the part of technology I've always loved the most is the, is the user side uh, and, the, and, and seeing organizations and individuals that are resistant to technology become real fans of it. You know, and, and some of that is just the way that we approach them. So yes, it's much more psychological. And 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 maybe uh, one thing I can say is that if 
if you're doing an implementation, we saw this all the time. If you're doing an implementation and you scare off, especially the finance team early on in the process, it's really hard to get to get that team back to the table and for them to understand that that this is a good thing. And so I had to start asking myself, like, okay, what scares people off on this? And so, you know, one discovery I had on that is that a lot of times I would walk in and say to a finance team, we're going to save you so much time and make your work so much more efficient because right now you're having to hand enter things or do a lot of work around reconciliation and we can tighten that process up for you and make it so much faster. And what I didn't realize is that they're for a finance person, a lot of times efficiency is not their end game. Their end game is accuracy. They don't care how much time it takes to get there. What they want to know is that it's accurate. So if you walk in and you tell them, I'm going to make this more efficient and I'm going to pipe all of this data from the CRM straight into your general ledger. <laughs> what you've just told them is you've lost all control over this data silo that you've been protecting from the organization for years. <laughs> and so, um, and and we're going to save you a lot of time. And what they're thinking is you're not going to save me time because I have to go back and check every transaction now. Mm. And so, um, yeah, it is actually learning like, okay, what is, what, what does it, you know, what does it take to help this team and not assume that the team that you talk to at the beginning, you know, which is often, um, you know, a, a appointed team by the board or the executives. And a lot of times it's the most tech friendly people that you, you establish the engagement with. Well, it's really important to go back and actually take the time to discover, okay, what are, what's going on for this one team? What are their tools? How do they approach it? And really adjust your style for that team and recognize, you know, technology, uh, you configure it once and it stays that way, but humans, it's really different. Uh, it takes practice and reconfiguration. But there's also such huge upside. Humans can look at a list of data and just visually be like, no, oh, that's wrong. That's inaccurate. That's not wrong. That person moved. This person is, you know, is in the summer. And so that's not the right address because they're in Hawaii right now. You know, like there is such amazing, instant, valuable uh, instinct and recognition in the ways that humans can interact that I think we just, because we don't see humans as part of the technology, we forgo all of those benefits. Does that make sense? It does. And I like how you you cater the message to the audience. So if you're talking to the finance team, like you said, it's about accuracy. If you're talking about to the, uh, to the uh, say, fundraising team, it's another message. Talking to the volunteer organization side, it, it's another. And that's, I think, an important part is being able to adapt through your wording and understand, to put yourself, of course, in their shoes mm -hmm. and understand what, communicate to them, what is their benefit going to be? What are their, what is their, once we're done here, this is what you're going to get. And this is what you're going to get, you know, all the advantages to the the solution. So it sounds like also you, you focus, I mean, almost entirely at this point on the human factor. So I'm curious to know, and this could be a longer answer, so maybe we'll just try to high level it is what are the, some of the reoccurring problems that you see in that uh, human factor? Great question. Wow. Nobody's asked me that. And um, so I, I really appreciate the chance to think about that for a second. I would say one of the biggest issues is that the marketing from platforms is so compelling. <laughs> like People so want the problem to be the car and not the humans. <laughs> 
And, and there's so many, you know, dealership promises out there that, you know, this car drives itself. This car is going to give you 360 degree view of your programs and grant management, whatever. Um, and it's just, all of that is so predicated on the idea that the humans know how to drive. And so I think one of the biggest issues right now is that the market has been trained to think about technology as uh, all of the technology problems as technology solutions, when in reality, most of the failure in technology is on the human side and tech solutions won't get at that. And so it's really hard to see organizations spend six figures and 18 months, you know, working into a new CRM or a new backend system just to end up exactly where they are now, just in a new system with, uh, you know, a huge budget uh, spent getting them there in a really big amount of time and maybe even some staff attrition because the project uh, and process is so arduous. And so uh, I, I would say the comprehension in the, in the ecosystem around this has been the real issue. Uh, I had to think of the idea of human stack and invent that. This is an innovation. This is like, you know, somebody one time asked Henry Ford, you know, I don't remember how it happened, but he said, if I asked customers what they wanted, they would say a faster horse. And that is a uh, faster horse's innovation. And what really we need uh, is invention of a new way of understanding how we deliver technology um, to humans and how we help them use it, not just better technology all the time. I don't think I high leveled that very well. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. it. It captured, I think, the essence of what my question was. Okay, good. So once your assessment is done, actually, maybe it isn't done because you talked about during your digital guidance, it's an ongoing perpetual type of engagement. But I mentioned there's at some point there's um, an output, a a result that is achieved. And what exactly is that output? Like, what are they? What can a nonprofit expect to receive by going through this digital guidance with you? Yeah. Um, two answers to that. One is that they should expect to be able to see some of the metrics. So I, you know, my claim is that we can create measurable change in any organization that has a, a culture of authenticity and transparency and that has uh, in any technology that is collaborative and cloud-based, we can see measurable change within four months. The measurable change that we look for is we're looking to see eight to 12 specific complaints in a system every month. And we're looking to see an organization meet three data quality KPIs that it is establishing strategically every month. So those are the measurements that I look for. Those probably sound really simple, but if you can get an organization to fix its data in, you know, which is past things that have happened in the past and their processes, which are, which is data in the future, right? Um, what you're going to see is a huge difference in the amount of confidence that teams have in their system. So this is really their ability to drive their own, uh, their own systems. So that's the first thing we look for are those uh, two metrics. And then the second thing that I look for is the ability for a, an executive, uh, an executive sponsor to create a roadmap and start mapping out 12 to 18 months in the future. Here are the things that we need to put in place. So really that's what I'm looking for 
uh, as an end goal for this process. Awesome. I'm curious to know then, as you're doing this transformation of your organization, going toward the more human element, what do you see in your short-term future? Where would you like the, the company to be or yourself to be within the next few years? Wow, thank you for that question. Um, yeah, so I'm hoping to launch the Human Stack as a new brand pretty soon here. Um, and then I, what I'd really like to see is for more professional service organizations seeing, um, seeing Human Stack certifications as a way for them to upskill their staff and to become empowered by the Human Stack as a way to affiliate with us. And, um, and so for a long time, I was thinking, okay, this is directly to nonprofits. And what I found is that I think actually professional service organizations are really looking for ways to authentically see better results. And just like I, I would never ask a client, do you want me to do waterfall or agile? I would say we are a waterfall shopper. We're an agile shop. This is the way we do it. And so um, what I'm hoping to see is that more and more professional services uh, are created around the human stack to help uh, nonprofits be able to use their systems better. And so if I were a nonprofit executive, the question I would begin to start asking is, do you feel like the issues for us in technology are new car issues or driver issues? And if they're driver issues, what do you offer to help us do this more effectively? This has been really informative. Thank you so much, Tim. Where can people find more about you online? Right now, the best place to do is to follow me on LinkedIn uh, and to go to uh, the Now It Matters website. And uh, in the next couple of months, I think I'll have another website coming out. But for now, you could follow me there. Um, and I would love, I, I, it really is helpful for me to hear how people respond or react to this. So if this has been interesting to you, please find me on LinkedIn and uh, message me. You can find me either at Now It Matters uh, or Tim Lockie. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, how how this hits you and and whether this is interesting or not. And if you disagree, I love that too. I think that's really interesting. So, yeah, Tim, thanks so so much for joining me today. Alex, thank you for uh, thanks for your time. It's been really fun. It's my pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again next time for Agents of Nonprofit.